And so I came with a baseball jersey this morning in honor of my, my trip. If uh, you didn't know, I was, I was gone for the last uh, three weeks. We got months. Shh, I was trying to make it look good. Uh, we got, what's, do we need to go to input? How's it looking? Let's try and put one. There we go. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. Um, for the last three months, I was gone on a, on a baseball venture. I called 30 for 30, uh, summer of baseball. I turned 30 in April. I went to 30 Major League Baseball parks to celebrate that. Um, and uh, went, it was each of the, each of the Major League ba- Baseball parks. If you do want to uh, check it out, uh, shameless plug here, uh, justinfranchino.tumblr.com will provide you with the rest of the details. I blogged uh, while I was gone this summer. A lot of pictures, updates, stories uh, would be found there. Tumblr is spelt without an E in this case. I didn't become illiterate over the summer. A couple things, just real quick here, some number crunching, kind of recap of what I did this summer. Uh, days spent not contributing to society, six. That was the total amount of time I was gone. I visited 30 stadiums, praise the Lord, not a rain out um, the whole summer, which was amazing. Uh, I drove, wait, I drove uh, 15,895 miles in my rental Prius out of Seattle, um, and I traveled over 20,000 miles, including planes and uh, bumming rides off other people. Uh, I occupied thir- 50, 43 of the 50 states this summer, including two of the Canadian provinces. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays uh, play up there in uh, Ontario, so I got to go to Canada as well. And probably the coolest part of the trip, I stayed with over 25 different people or families. Uh, most of them I knew. Um, that's a whole other story. Um, we, uh, that was easily the best part of the trip, though, was all of the uh, family and friends, old college roommates I hadn't seen since we were all skinny. Um, it was just an amazing time uh, just really to, to encourage one another. And I, I, that was a part of the trip that I hadn't anticipated. Of the 96 nights, I stayed 60 of them in people's homes for free 99. Uh, 16 nights spent in the car. Again, that's another story. Uh, 17 nights in a hotel, uh, and two nights in the airport, first and last night in uh, Seattle. 72 gas fill-ups, not necessarily, you know, the whole tank, but 72 times at a gas station. Saw 74 home runs this summer. The home team was 21 and 14. Uh, The hottest temperature at first pitch this summer was in Phoenix, Arizona, 104 degrees. That was not great. Um, luckily, though, the, they do have a retractable roof, and it was air-conditioned, so it was um, endurable. The coldest temperature was the first game in Seattle, uh, which was almost 50 degrees cooler than that, much better for an Alaskan. And then the last number was Sarah Palin jokes that were made to me this summer, 953-ish. Uh, if, you, if you've been outside recently, like that's, it used to be like, hey, you're from Alaska. Is it cold there? Are there polar bears? And now it's like, hey, do you know Sarah Palin? Like, yeah, there's only 10 of us in Alaska. We're all related. Uh, you know, do you, where does, where does Sarah, Sarah Palin live? And, and the, the best one, you know, can Sarah Palin really see Russia from her house? Crazy how those jokes just never got old all summer. It was awesome. Um, but like Dorothy says, there is no place like home. And it was it's great to be back. Um, being up here, as fun as the trip was, um, it was, it was time to be back, and I'm looking forward to uh, hearing great things of what God's been doing in our church family this summer, and I'm excited about where he's taking us this fall. Um, we are launching a new series this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking into the book of First Peter. 
been really encouraged, just pouring into this book all summer long um, when I wasn't at baseball games. And an, an incredible book with real life situations for real people. And the, the sermon series that we're going to be, we've called this is Stand Firm in This Grace. And we're going to get a little bit more into the reason behind that, um, that motto uh, this morning. Uh, th- today, um, we're, and this will be a series that will probably take the most of the rest of, of 2014, uh, potentially even into this winter. We'll be looking at the books of First Peter and Second Peter, most likely. Um, and like I said, Larry will uh, jump back in with us when he gets back from Washington. This week, first week, uh, is called Cultural Conflict. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can, you can go to First Peter. We're just looking at the first couple of verses. They will be in the NIV on the screen. If you have a translation you prefer, you can open to that. Um, if you were walking down uh, the street, or I guess the, the beach in this case, and you stumbled across a letter, you found a letter, you, you get that letter out of the bottle, and you look at that letter. As you read that letter, what do you need to know to be able to understand what's going on in this, in this letter? What are some things that, that we need to know? Who wrote it? What did you say? The language, the language yeah. That would, that's important. What did you say, Dan? Who is it for? Who the, so who wrote it, and who did they write it to? Yeah, very good. What else? What's the relationship between the people? Absolutely. Why was it written? What's the purpose of this letter? Exactly. Another thing that would be helpful is when was this written? Was this during the Revolutionary War? Was this last week? Like, so we need some context. And the more context you have, the better you're going to be able to understand what this letter is all about. So when we read these letters, this letter was written 2,000 years ago. And it wasn't written to you or me. And what we're doing here is we're reading over somebody's shoulder. And that wasn't written and so what we have to figure out before we can apply it to our lives is what did it mean for the person that it was originally written to? And, and so what we're going to do this morning is, is dive into a little bit of the context so that we can more accurately and truthfully apply it to our lives in 2014. And what I'd encourage you, a little challenge, um, is I would challenge you to, and, and myself as well, uh, once a week to read the book of 1 Peter in its entirety. Five chapters takes about 15 minutes. I did it this morning. Um, and, and what that does is it gives you a context of the entire letter. Um, this summer, as I was driving those 15,000 miles, uh, if you have the Bible, the YouVersion app um, on your smartphone, you can actually listen to the audio of, of the scripture. So you can be driving in your car to work or, you know, whatever, uh, running around getting your kids, and you can be listening to that. Uh, while you're driving. And that was incredible um, just to be able to hear it in context. Because you think about it, we don't read, like if, if you get a letter from somebody, you don't just read a couple of sentences, right? You read the whole letter at, in one sitting. And when I was in sixth grade and I was getting love notes from Brittany Leiter, and I would take them and r- race into the bathroom stall. I don't know why that was my hangout place. And I'd open this heart-shaped letter and I'd read the whole thing, right? 31 plus 13 equals love. It's so true. Um, and I, would read the, I wouldn't just read like one word and then you know, fold it back up and read it again later, another word tomorrow morning, 
right? I read the whole letter. And so while we do digest, and I think it is important to, you know, to, it, sometimes in the mornings and in our times together to really zoom in on a couple verses or a chapter, and we need to keep that in context because it was written as an entire letter. And I, and, and, and I, pro- I promise you that God will use that to transform your understanding of his truth and of what is being written if you can do that. So I challenge you to once a week set aside some time uh, to read First Peter in, in its entirety. So anyway, these four things, and we, we mentioned them, uh, the date, the author, the audience, and the purpose is what we're going to look at this morning. When was it written? Who was it written to? By whom? And for what? Um, so starting with the date, this, this book uh, was written in about 64 A.D., Somewhere in that time frame, it could have been as early as 62, could have been as late as 67, somewhere in that range. And this was time to be a Christian. This is a time that the church is in its infant stage. It's only like 30 years old. It's a very young church. And some crazy things already out of the gate are happening uh, to, to God's people. Uh, one of which is that Paul is killed. Now, again, depending on when this letter was written, he may have already died, he may have not quite died yet, somewhere in that range. If nothing else, he was probably in Rome, and it was, his death was inevitable. And what this created was, I mean, Paul was the, he was the minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. Everybody who wasn't a Jew, they were like, under Paul's leadership. And so if Paul, for the first time in church history, we don't have the Apostle Paul. And we all know what it's like when we lose the head of an organization, a family, whatever it is, things can become chaotic. And so they're no longer going to have Paul's leadership. So this is a real transition for the church. But beyond that, they're living in a Roman world. The Roman Empire is at the peak of its powers at this time. And, and, uh, and what you're finding is... There, there becomes this growing rift, this cultural conflict, the theme of this morning, a cultural conflict between the Roman culture and, and the Christian culture. In other words, being a, a Christian and being a Roman are starting to look more and, and more different. And, and to be a Christian in the Roman Empire was becoming more and more difficult. And, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, one of which is that, that Christians, of course, would refuse to worship the emperor uh, or the Roman gods. And, and just like through all throughout Old Testament history with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all these people who said, I will not bow down to any other god, they wouldn't bow down to the, they wouldn't worship what the Romans told them to worship. And the Romans didn't like that. They didn't take kindly to this, this disobedience, this civil disobedience. Uh, secondly, the Christians were very closely associated with the Jewish people. Um, you know, of course, come from, from the same roots. And so there was this growing anti-Semitic movement in, in the Roman culture at that time. And so the Christians were sort of lumped into that and, and sort of uh, treated with the same kind of animosity as the, as the Jewish people were. Um, also... There was this perception of intolerance. Um, you know, this, this morning, um, we're going to be taking part in communion, I believe. And um, what uh, we believe, uh, that communion is, is only for believers. And if you're not a believer, that, that you know, that, that's not uh, for you. And uh, they were having the Lord's Supper at this time, and they said that this isn't for what they referred to as the pagans. That the pagans couldn't sit at the table and have the Lord's Supper with them. Well, that was seen as intolerant. That was seen as, as exclusivity. And the, the Romans didn't, didn't like that. And so they started accusing 
The Christians, of all of these things, and, and, um, such as cannibalism, they said they're, they're, they're over there, they're eating the Lord's flesh and drinking his blood. Weird stuff going on there, these cannibals. And they started to spread these rumors about the Christians. Um, this also spread into the area of sexuality. Um, as you know, we see in Scripture a lot of times where, where Paul or Peter will say, greet one another with a holy kiss. That was a common practice in early culture to do that. To, and men with men, women with women, women with men, back and forth. And so um, because of this, again, because they didn't like the Christians, they started saying, well, the, the, the Christians are practicing homosexuality. Men are kissing men. And, you know, and they started to accuse them of orgies and all of these things in regard to sexuality um, that kind of stemmed from these practices. And then finally... Um, and pertaining to marriage, this, there was a, a big, a lot of issues, one of which was you had these prominent Roman figures and their wives often were turning to Christ. And so what would happen is they, they don't, the husbands don't like that, of course, and so the church is being charged of, of practicing insubordination, that you're not being submissive within a marriage relationship. Now, does any of this ring true for today? Issues in our culture with marriage, sexuality, intolerance, worship. The things that the first century Christians were experiencing here in Rome are the very things that we're experiencing in our society today. And I think that we all see pretty clearly that there is this growing rift, this growing cultural divide, this conflict between what it looks like to be a Christian and what it looks like to be an American. And it's becoming more and more difficult, and I'm not here to do doomsday stuff and whatever, every culture is saturated with sin, but, but our culture is looking less and less like what it looks like to be a Christian, which to me is, is exciting, because what I think that will do is that will create, that will separate the wheat from the chaff, and that will show who, who really believes this stuff and who's just playing games. Where did this turn in, in the first century? This went to some pretty harsh places. Um, Nero, who was the emperor at the time, um, you know, probably the, one of the most famous emperors, um, he, he was nearing the end of his reign. He reigned from 54 to 68 AD. He was nearing the end of his reign. He was also nearing the end of his rope with the Christians. He was out on these Christians for all these reasons that we just talked about. And in, on July 19th of 64 AD, there was this great fire. You're probably familiar with this, this fire in Rome where Rome is literally in flames. And there's this famous saying that says, while Rome burned, Nero fiddled. In other words, he did nothing. And, and, and the Romans, they start to peg this fire on Nero, saying it was Nero that started this fire. Well, that doesn't look good for an emperor and his, you know, when he's trying to run for, uh, you know, the next time he's running for office. So he needs to try to shift blame here. So he says, it wasn't me. And in a stroke of genius, he says it was the Christians. Because there's already this extreme hatred for the Christians. So he says it was them. They started the fire. They did this. And so this hatred that was already pretty intense on the Christians now becomes an unstoppable force. And Nero is known as the first great persecutor of the Christian faith. And unspeakable things are happening to the Christians. They take Christians and they light them on fire as they're still alive to use them as human lanterns or torches for their garden parties. 
they take humans and they, they, they take the believers and they would put wild animal skins on them and play games where they would send them into the woods and have wild jo- uh, dogs chase them and tear them into pieces. They would nail them to crosses. They would imprison them for no reason. Lynching without trial, scourgings, stonings, hangings, burning, broiling, searing, lacerating with hot knives and throwing the believers onto the horns of wild bulls. This is what the Christian church was on the cusp of enduring when this letter was written. This is what it would have looked like to be a Christian in this time. These were believers in desperate need of hope, of direction, and of encouragement. And so, who is the one that wrote this letter? Well, spoiler alert, if you, first Peter, you probably could have figured it out. It was written by Peter. Uh, the first verse tells us that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is the author of these. There's, you can look in commentaries, and there's some debate, but really, at the end of the day, I mean, it, it, it's pretty clear and, and, and safe to land there for our purposes. Um, who's the best person in your life to speak to you when you need hope and direction and encouragement? I know for me, often it's, it's somebody who, who loves me, so, someone who knows me, someone who cares about me, but I think one of the most important things is someone who can empathize with me, someone who's walked my road, who's experienced what I'm experiencing, someone who gets it. And I think that's probably why I've never been asked to speak at our annual Art of Marriage conference. Like, I wouldn't be a good candidate for that. I would get up front and be like, I don't know what the big deal is, guys. You need to get your acts together. It doesn't look that hard, you know. Um, That's a joke. Um, I haven't walked that road. I've never been married. I don't know what that's like. And so for me to speak to to people who, who are in that situation, that wouldn't make any sense. Peter, though, you could not have found a better candidate to write this letter that, that Peter wrote. Because Peter... Peter knows persecution. You remember, it's very well documented in the Gospels, the first time Peter faced persecution, he folded. Folded like a wet watermelon, right? When, when, when that little girl comes to him and says, hey, trial of Jesus around the fire, hey, didn't, aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you part of that group? I don't know what you're talking about. He said three times, he denies his Lord and has to look at his tear-stained face when the rooster crows that third time. Peter knows what it's like to be persecuted and to fail in that persecution. But I know when I'm, when I'm looking to people uh, in times of need, I'm not looking, we're, we're not looking for perfection. We're not looking for someone who has lived a perfect life and never made a mistake, right? We're looking for people who understand. People who have walked that road and even failed on that journey. And Peter experienced the exact same thing that you and I need to experience in our lives. The grace and restoration of his Lord. And in spite of himself, not because of himself, in spite of himself, Jesus said, I'm going to use you, Peter, to build the church upon. In fact, he literally changes Peter's name to Rock. He said, you're the rock, you're the foundation that I'm going to build my church on. Not because of how strong you are, not because of how well you persevere in the midst of persecution, but because I am the God that chose you and will go with you. 
And because of the grace of God, Peter becomes the minister of the gospel to the Gentile or to the Jews. Paul to the Gentiles, Peter to the Jews, becomes one of the greatest leaders in church history. And Peter knows persecution. He's not writing this letter from some ivory tower, some beachside resort, where he's and saying, well, I, I hope down there in Rome. No, Peter, there's nothing here that this church has faced that Peter has himself not endured as well. And in fact, Peter, he, Peter practices what he preaches and to the point of, of death unto his Lord. Peter, Peter dies for the sake of Christ, and he even says, as you know, he says, they were going to crucify him. He says, no, 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 no. If, if you're going to kill me, don't kill me like my Lord. And he asked to be turned upside down when he was crucified, because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified like his Lord was. This is the Peter that had failed in persecution, but by the grace of God, he persevered and died for his Lord. And this is what qualifies Peter to utter these words. In chapter 4, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This isn't just cheap advice. This is somebody who had committed himself his entire life to his faithful creator and in the midst of suffering continued to do the good work. And in chapter 5, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered, look, he says, a little while, in the, in, in the scheme of eternity, it's just a little bit of suffering, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter had himself experienced the restoration of his Lord and been made strong and firm and held stand fast, st- stood stand fast by the grace of God. So this is Peter. This is the one who writes, who pens these words. And who does he write to? He says in the second half of verse 1, To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are the people. And this is, this is who they are, where they're from. But then he gives us what the most important thing about their identity. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. He says, more important than where you're from or what your name is. And this is a great nod to the Trinity here, where he talks about all three parts of the Godhead and their intimate involvement in our lives. That God chose you, that the Spirit set you apart and made you holy, and that Jesus sprinkled you with his blood as we are obedient to him. He says, this is what matters most about you. But then sort of working backward, these Christians that he's referring to, this would be probably mostly Jew and Gentile, a combination of the two. And because of the region, probably mostly Gentiles. And they lived in these five Roman provinces that he mentions here. Now, oh, that was different on my computer. Um, this, is a, <laughs> this is a distorted view of the Roman Empire. And up here in the top right uh, is modern-day Turkey. Just picture in your mind modern-day Turkey with your great imaginations, and it's right there. Um, these five Roman provinces were kind of on the fringe. They were sort of like the, the Sterling or Nikiski of the area, where they're kind of out there and, uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, they, uh, so Paul is sort of, or Peter, sorry, I'm going to say Paul a lot on accident because that's usually who we're talking about in these letters. Peter uh, wrote to these people 
They're kind of fringe. And they would have been the first people to sort of suffer from Paul's absence because Timothy and Apollo, some of those guys had been, had been nearby in sort of the central part of the empire. But some of these people kind of in the backwoods, the fringe of the empire, would have been the first to miss uh, Paul's presence. So he wants to reach out to these people and encourage them um, in, this, in this terrible time of persecution and, and transition. And so he, he writes to these people, and it's an interesting term that he uses here. The, the term he uses, he says, to God's elect strangers in the world. Now this, this term could probably be better translated, and is in other, in other translations, elect exiles. Um, and, and maybe even a better rendition, a, a better, a truer to the original meaning, would have been resident aliens. Resident aliens. Aliens, and so what you see, and, and a guy uh, from the, a pastor from the Village Church in Texas, who I got a, a lot of my uh, sources from in this sermon, he said it this way. Maybe even better understanding for our modern day context would be refugee millionaires. Refugee millionaires. Think about that concept. These these terms are what we call oxymorons. You know, jumbo shrimp, military intelligence. Um, when, when there's two words that are inherently contradictory and they're put together to make a, a phrase, uh, this is a refugee millionaire, a resident alien, someone who lives here but doesn't live here, someone who has much but, but in actuality, or, or someone who has nothing but in actuality has, has much. And, and uh, this pastor from, uh, from the village church said it this way, he said, uh, if I can find it, he said, you are at the same time the most despised and looked down upon in the entire world, the Christians were, and yet the richest and most blessed in Jesus Christ of anybody on the face of the planet. And this, this applies to us, does it not? We are refugees, we are aliens, we are exiles. This is not our home I experienced that a lot this summer, of course, driving around from place to place, none of which of these places were my home. I remember I never felt more out of place than in New Orleans, Louisiana, driving around downtown New Orleans and saying, this place is insane. <laughs> I, drive, I, I, I drove past Bourbon Street and just kept right on driving. I'm not even going to... The, the, the heat, the humidity, the crazy masks, I only tried on one of them... Um, this strange place, this place is very different, and I was there, I was, I was occupying that space, but I clearly didn't belong there. That was not my home. I didn't fit in there. And we are not from this world. We are, we are residents, this is where we live, but this is not our home in, in that spiritual sense. And yet, so often, we look way too comfortable here. And, and we put our hopes in the things that the locals put their hopes in. <clears throat> the Christians throughout history were the most persecuted of, of any people in the history of the world. There's never no, no people, no group of people have been more persecuted than the Christians. And yet, there is no people on earth that will experience more eternal blessing and favor from our God than his than his bride. And so these people in Turkey, they're scared. They've been outcast. They've been persecuted. They're intimidated. They are discouraged. And then this letter comes in the mail. And this is the letter that we get the privilege of reading 2,000 years later. What's the purpose? Why did Peter write to these people on the fringe of the Roman Empire? Um, 
This is how he starts the letter. They rip open this letter, and these, after he gives this brief introduction of who I am and who you are, this is where he starts. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where does Peter start in the midst of this suffering, of this intense persecution that they're on the brink of experiencing? He starts with worship. He starts and says, praise God. Praise God. And praise God for what? Praise God for my salvation. Praise God for the salvation of my soul that I've been moved from darkness to light based on his mercy, not the fact that I deserve it. And he says he's given us new life and he's given us hope. And what does he say this hope is found on? He does not say this is hope that's found on my feelings and the warm squishies that I get on Sunday morning from singing worship songs. Now, is that good? It is, but that's not where my hope is found. And my hope is not found, praise God, on my own ability to follow the rules and be a good person. He says, my hope rests on what? The resurrection of Jesus. We have a hope this morning because Jesus is alive. We have a hope this morning because we serve a God who is living and seated at the right hand of the Father, a God who is no longer in the grave. That's how we know. That's the hope. That's the vision that we have before us that can keep us going this morning. We have this hope. And then he goes on to say, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in you for heaven. So this gets better. He says, not only are you saved, but he says, there's this thing. God's got this amazing retirement plan for you. When you die and you finish it all, he's got this inheritance saved in heaven for you, and it will never go bad. It will never spoil or fade. Jesus said it's in a place where moth and rust cannot destroy He says, the world can torture you, can mock you, can kill you, but they can't touch what God has in store for you. That's the inheritance that you and I have waiting for us. And then he says in verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So, as he gets even better, he says you've been saved, you have this inheritance waiting for you in heaven, and God personally guarantees through his own power to guard you and keep you until that day. I mean, this, this blows the mind. God, I picture it like, like a platoon of Navy SEALs who are just huddled around you and getting you through the battle, getting you through the war to protect you. But God says it's my power, which is unparalleled in the So really, it's like taking the, the Navy SEALs and moving them through like a fourth grade dodgeball game. It's like there's, there's no, you have nothing to worry about. Now, will there be suffering? Will there be pain along the way? Yes. But we are persecuted, not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And God says, I've got something for you that you can't even imagine. And I promise you that through my power, I'll get you there. Now, doesn't it, it seems a little strange that this is where Peter, I mean, if, if someone comes to you and they're going through something rough and they got, they've got problems and they come to you with a crisis, I know for me, I immediately snap into action. Let's talk about this crisis. Let's figure out this crisis. Let's address this thing that's going on in your life. Peter starts by waxing poetic about our salvation and this inheritance and sort of this. Why would he start there? Why doesn't, shouldn't he address this suffering, this immediate concern? 
Well, Jeff Dryden, a commentator, he said it this way. He said, the reason Peter starts here in these first three verses is because, for this reason, he says, Peter's primary intention, the purpose that he's writing this letter, his primary intention in writing this letter is to build character into the hearers. Now, follow me on this, this, this line of, of reasoning. He says his, his primary purpose, his intention for writing this letter is to build character into his hearers. And, and, and Dryden's argument is that Peter knows the best way to see character developed in these people is to give them what he calls a, a narrative vision of life. In other words, to give them the big story, the big picture. To give them this beautiful image, this beautiful promise that, that God has given us. And he says, that, it's that promise, it's that vision that is going to transform them, is going to build character in them, and is going to compel them to persevere when the going gets rough. Peter, Peter knows that you don't start with a list of do's and don'ts. You don't start with all the moral regulations. You start with this hope-filled vision. And that's what it will inspire. Let's say that I have a young basketball player. I know I was, it was a summer of baseball, but you know where my heart is. You have a young basketball player, and you want to see him become great. What do you do to try to see that that happens, that that comes through fruition? You don't sit him down day one and say, I want to go over all the violations in the basketball handbook and show you what you should do, what you shouldn't do, that's not going to inspire him. That's not going to compel him to greatness. What you do is you take him to an NBA game. You take him to an arena, packed with thousands of fans. And you show him, see there in the middle of that court? That's LeBron, and he's back in Cleveland. <laughs> you, say, you say, I want you to watch him, because that's... And I want you to look at him because if you stick with it, if you work hard, that's where you could be headed. I know he won't become 6'6 and black, but you could be headed. You show them this vision of greatness and what could be achieved if you push through. Let's say you had a young girl, a budding cellist, okay? She wants to play, is that what you call someone who plays the cello? I would assume. Um, you don't start with all the rules, all the techniques concert. You show her some famous cellist. I'm sure they're out there. I don't know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you <laughs> that is a famous cellist. Oh, <laughs> uh, Jacob. Um, so you take her to this concert and you say, this is greatness. And you do this with them because so that the days when he, when that little boy sprains his ankle, or he gets cut from the freshman team. Or he can't get that play down and he wants to quit. And that little girl's fingers are aching and she doesn't want to play anymore. And she can't get that note right or that song down. That vision of greatness is what's going to compel them to pursue. So if you're sitting here this morning and, and you don't feel transformed, you, you, you say, I, I, I don't get it. I'm not seeing it. I'm not, I'm not feeling it and you feel like giving up, very likely it's because Christianity for you has been boiled down to a list of do's and don'ts, the moral regulations that you're supposed to, fo that you're supposed to follow. 
And when the going gets tough, what am I doing? And if that's what we make it about, if we make it about stopping to do the bad things and trying to do the good things, we're going to only go one of two places. It's going to lead us toward hypocrisy, where we, where we pretend that we're doing good, but on the inside we know we're falling apart. Or it's going to lead us to despair, and we recognize that we, we have nothing to stand on. But perhaps you have never seen, uh, or, or perhaps you've lost, this vision that's painted here in verses 3 through 5. This vision of, of our great salvation based on the mercy and goodness of God. This inheritance reserved for us and his power that will protect us until that salvation is fully realized. That's what will change us. And that's, and we'll end here, the purpose of this letter. The theme verse, kind of the, the, the thing we're going to kind of continue to circle as we go through this study together, is found in 1 Peter, the last chapter, chapter 5, verse 12. I love this. Peter just comes out. He makes this easy. I didn't have to do a lot of studying because he just tells us exactly what his purpose is. He says, my purpose in writing is, there you go. Hey, thank you, Peter. My purpose in writing you is to encourage you and assure you, to give you courage and to make sure you know that what you are experiencing, and check this out, is truly part of God's grace for you. Think about what he's just said. He says that suffering that you're going through, that hardship when you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when you're being persecuted for what you believe, he says that's part of God's grace for you. He said that's part of, and grace is, is unmerited favor, it's goodness, it's blessing. He says part of God's goodness to you is going through this suffering. Now what that means, we're going to unpack in the weeks to come. And this is his charge to the people in 64 AD, and I believe our charge in 2014. He says stand firm in this grace. Stand firm firm in this grace. And I love this because it's a charge to us to stand firm, but he doesn't say stand firm in your own ability to figure things out. Stand firm in your own strength. Stand firm in your own intellect. Stand firm in your good looks. He says stand firm in the grace of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the only foundation that we can stand on that we will not sink upon. He says, stand firm in this grace. And the reason that I, that I think it's so important for us to go through this book together is because we live in this world, this growing cultural conflict between what it means to be a Christian and what that looks like to live in America today. And we need to know these truths so that we can stand firm. When that job interview comes and they ask you what you believe, that you will stand firm. Many of you are going to school soon. And when that professor or that high school teacher comes down on you for what you believe, when he mocks you, when he challenges you with these other ideas, that you will stand firm, that you'll have an answer. When that coworker, when that neighbor challenges you, say, why do you believe that? That you'll know what to say, that you'll, that you'll stand firm. And when, when doing the, the wrong thing is so much easier than doing the right thing, that we'll stand firm. And this is what Peter says in chapter 3. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. 
This is not our home. We don't live under the same rules as these people. And then he says in the verse that you probably know, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. There's one boss. There's one leader. There's one who is more powerful than all, and that's him. He's our Lord. He has always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We need to stand firm and give an answer when the world asks why. Why this hope? Why do you believe what you believe? And notice that it says, do this with gentleness and respect. And this is an area that we as a church can learn a lot in. Uh, we have a lot of growing up to do. And that a lot of this, this our nation, we have, a, we have smeared the name of Christ, not because the, the gospel offends, but so often we make the gospel offensive in our presentation. And we give Christianity a bad name because of the way that we conduct ourselves and the words that come out of our mouth. But again, that'll be something that we get into deeper as the study goes on. My prayer for this, over the course of this series, is that we'll have this beautiful vision painted for us of the salvation that we've been given, of the inheritance that's in store for us, and the power and grace of God that will get us through, that will, that will compel us to persevere, that that will give us character, that character might be built in the midst of suffering in this world, because the suffering is real and the pain is real, but so is God. And that we would be ready, and that we would stand firm in this grace. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that is not our home. You've sent us here. You've kept us here so that we could spread your word so that we might rescue more sinners from the, the grips of sin and, and hell and separation from you. But Father, this, this, is not, this is not where we are from. And that's evidenced every day. Father, this world is hard. And, and, and we're going through difficult things and trials and, and sufferings. And, and from all sides, Lord, sometimes it feels like the walls are caving in. Father, I pray that you would lift our chins this morning so that we might see your grace. And we might stand firm on the rock of your Son. And Father, may we study this, this book together, that, that you would apply it to our hearts so that we would be prepared, that we would be students of the word, soldiers of your army, so that we're ready, so that when the battle comes, we are tested and we remain true. Not based on our own ability to stand, but based on the grace that we are firmly planted upon. Father, we love you and we thank you that you have snatched us out of darkness and moved us into light. We look forward to the inheritance that you have in heaven waiting for us when our salvation is realized. And we thank you that every single morning your mercies are new. And you give us the grace to get through the day and to be who you've called us to be. May we be holy as you are holy. We thank you for your grace. May we stand firm in it. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.